All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, grab it and make your way right where we were. If you don't have a Bible with you, that'll be on page 560 in one of the ones that is around you. Um, and while you're turning there, um, if you've got any background in the church, and if you don't, that, that, that's cool, but just to help you understand uh, maybe some Christian lingo that's not actually biblical, but just Christian lingo, you may have heard of something called a life verse. Nothing wrong with a life verse, but a life verse, the whole idea is, you know, it's a it's one particular verse out of Scripture that really stands out to you. And it's kind of like, you you know, you, you contemplate on it a lot. You think on it a lot. It it it, it appeals to you. It means a lot to you. And so um, if I was going to have one that I would say maybe is kind of like that for me, it would, it would be Second Corinthians 521, which I quote pretty much every single week, uh, which is that uh, God made Jesus to become sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so it just really kind of um, grabs or uh, summarizes the, the great exchange that Jesus, the gospel, what it is, is that Jesus took our sin on the cross, paid it. He was an atoning death, a substitutionary death. He took what we deserve and he paid it. And then um, in response or, or in exchange, I guess, gives us his righteousness. So the gospel is not just that Jesus forgives us and we have a clean slate, but it's that he actually clothes us or puts on us his righteousness. And so that's Second Corinthians 5.21. But lots of people may have a life verse or something like that. The beginning of our text today, verse 37 out of chapter 6, would be the life verse for modern, secular, America, non-believing people. Don't judge. Like that's the cardinal sin. It's probably one of two verses that non-believers might still have some idea of. Uh, don't judge as well as God is love. Those two things, and that wraps up everything. So that would be kind of the life verse for modern, secular, American religion. But beyond just kind of that life verse idea there, Beyond the misunderstanding, because that's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied texts in all of the Bible, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But beyond all of that, this verse bats lead off for um, a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain that's kind of like some, some commands he's throwing out that really serve as marks of maturity for people, for, for believers. They kind of serve as marks of maturity, things that we can kind of grade ourselves against, things that we can look at, because Jesus says in verse 40, he's going to say, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. That is, will be like Jesus. We will be mature and we will live absolutely countercultural, we'll live outside the norm and live in such a way that it makes people scratch their heads and say, that's not normal. That's, I don't understand that. What, what is that? And so these marks of maturity that we're going to be looking at are embedded, like I said, in a larger section that's known as the Sermon on the Plain uh, that Jesus gives or is recorded for us in chapter 6. And just kind of setting the context, what we're going to be looking at today comes right on the heels of where Jesus is preaching and he just finished telling his disciples to love their enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those 
who abuse you, just this complete counter-cultural doesn't make sense. Be merciful as your Father in Heaven is merciful. Do these things that don't make any sense. Someone curses you, you bless them. Someone hates you, you do good to them. Someone abuses you, you pray for them. And so Jesus follows that up immediately, beginning in verse 7, 37 with, you know, with these commands uh, of things that we're to do that kind of serve as marks of maturity for us. And so as we go through those this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit will use these to, to prick our hearts, to cause us to ask questions, to tell us, help us to turn our perhaps proclivity towards judgmentalism and condemnation of others and turn that on ourselves and examine ourselves and lead us to change through the Holy Spirit. And so we'll we just jump in, look at chapter 6, verse 37 with me. These marks of maturity. Verse 37, Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And so like I said, this first section here, all right, this idea of, of judge not, this is, you know, the American non-Christian, if they had a life verse, this would be it. Thou shalt not judge. And people will trot that out all the time. And it's actually kind of funny because when they trot that out, they're judging you. Right? You're saying, this here's not wrong. Don't you judge. Why are you judging me for judging? It, it, it kind of makes no sense, but that's the way it kind of works. But, but this verse is you know, one of the most ripped out of context, misapplied verses in all of Scripture. Because Jesus, as we will especially see next week, Jesus is not ruling out the legitimate use of discernment. He's not ruling out church discipline. He's not ruling out courts of law. Any of that. I mean, just naturally, we have to make decisions. In order to make a decision, you have to judge. Is this good or is this good? Is this better? Which one's better? I need to make a judgment here. Is this, you know, is this right or wrong? Those are judgments we have to make. So Jesus is not ruling out, you know, any and all judging to do that would mean we would never be able to make a decision. So we, we have to, we have to judge. And, and, and beyond even that, if, if we're going to love people, if we're going to love as a covenant community here in this church, as we talk about in our membership covenant, if we're going to live that way, then we have to judge. We have to adjudicate. Is this good? Is this good? Are they living? You know, we have to make these decisions. Obviously, we have a legal system and that has to judge. Is this person um, a criminal or not? What happened here? All those things. But even in this church, we have to judge, especially church members. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So we're to especially all right, judge in the sense of like not condemnation, but helping one another walk in a way that's Christ honoring, we're to, you know, speak to one another and, and, and help one another. And brother, I don't know if you if you see this, but I don't know if this if maybe I'm wrong here. But brother, it, it seems like you've got, you know, maybe maybe a little bit of this. Like that's a loving thing to do. 
And so Paul's saying, that we don't judge outsiders. We're to judge those inside the church. But unfortunately, too often, we get this backwards. We get this backwards and we let the sins of things like gluttony and gossip and bitterness and laziness and narcissism and idolatry and racism, we let those go in the church. But then outside the church, we're the morality police. We're the nitpickers. We're, you know, just um, calling people out and just, you know, continually nitpicking them to death, illogically expecting non-Christians to live like Christians. Why would they? Why? Why would they live that way? They're not Christian. And so they don't need morality. They need Jesus. They don't need our morality. They need Jesus. And so, listen to me. Christians should expect Christians to live like Christians. But Christians should not expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. You shouldn't expect that. And so when Christians, when, when we in the church, when we sin, we lovingly call one another out. We call one another to repentance. We walk through church discipline if there's no repentance and even carry that to the place of excommunicating someone from the church. And that's what the very next thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 after he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. And then he immediately follows that up. Purge the evil person from among you. He's talking about church discipline. And so in the church, sin is a serious thing. But non-Christians, step one is they need to meet Jesus. They don't need behavioral modification. They need to meet Jesus and He'll change their heart and He'll change their life. And we can work through all the other things in time and through His grace and through His mercy and through the support of the church around one another. Sanctification is a messy process. People don't need morality first. They need Jesus first. And Jesus will take care of everything else. So so I say all that to say, Jesus is not saying here, never judge. What He is saying is that we are not to live a fault-finding, critical, judgmental life. And so the first mark of maturity we're going to talk about this morning, the first mark is that you're not a judgmental jerk. That's the first mark of maturity. You're not a judgmental jerk. Somebody's like, well, what's the difference in judging and being judgmental? Judgmentalism is an attitude. It's a disposition of the heart. All right? And it's merciless. It's merciless. It assumes and it places motives on actions. So you want to know if you're judgmental? Do you assume people's motives behind their actions? That's judgmental. It sees others in the worst light. It does not give one another the benefit of the doubt. It does not live according to our membership covenant. It's quick to take offense. It's not bearing with one another in love. It's jumping to conclusions. 
It's filling in the gaps that you don't know, so you fill them in with your, with your thoughts and treat that as fact. It's being quick to criticize, slow to forgive. As Kent Hughes puts it, it's at best a sign of spiritual cancer and at worst a sign of spiritual death. And folks, it's one of the biggest roadblocks in people coming to a place of believing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ because seeing this judgment that's antithetical to the gospel. So our judgmental spirits are one of the biggest roadblocks in the spread of the gospel. I mean, just straight up, we work against the gospel and its spread when we are overconfident in conclusions we reach about people's problems without fully understanding why, uh, understanding the situation or, or even seeing it through someone else's shoes. We work against the gospel when we judge people's motives, assuming that we know why they did what they did when actuality we don't. But we read ourselves in and we get easily offended and jump to conclusions. We work against the gospel when we withhold forgiveness from people who have sinned against us. We work against the gospel when we keep our distance from Christians struggling with messy sins like sexual immorality, drug addiction. We want to stay away from that. We work against the gospel when we criticize the sins that other people commit more than we repent of our own righteousness or our own self-righteousness. We work against the gospel when we shun people with messy problems like poverty, marital strife, rebellious children. We work against the gospel when we use angry slogans to condemn hot button issues like abortion and gay lifestyle. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, without ever befriending someone and letting them see the grace and mercy of Jesus. We work against the gospel when we assume the worst about a group of people based upon the actions of a few. And that's going on today with both our police brothers and sisters and both our black brothers and sisters. Judging whole groups of people based upon the actions of a few. But the tragic irony in all of this is none of this is how Jesus treats us. None of it. He knows the full truth about us. He knows the full extent of our sin. And yet He reaches out in mercy. Knowing full well everything we've ever done, everything that we deserve, He still went to the cross for us. At great cost to Himself. He went to the cross and He died to give us forgiveness through His atoning death and offer us eternal life through the power of His resurrection. And if we've received this grace and this mercy, we should give it to others. As my friend Trevin put it this week, the grace that flows in is to be the grace that flows out. We're conduits of grace. Or as Philip Ryken put it very similarly, the grace we give flows from the grace we have received and that we still need. And so everybody look right at me. If there's no grace 
flowing out of you. You have to ask the question of whether there's been any grace that's flowed into you. You have to ask that question and be honest with yourself. A grace-filled father has grace-filled children. And so that's the first mark of maturity. You're not a self-righteous, judgmental jerk. Mark number one. Mark number two is that you're quick to forgive. You're quick to forgive. Look at verse 37 with me again. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. So, so forgive and you will be forgiven. So this is mark number two. You're quick to forgive. But when we, when we read this, initially the word order here kind of catches us off guard and we're kind of like, oh, so, so it's just a works-based thing. Forgive others and then Jesus will forgive me. We're t- taking the whole Bible into um, consideration and everything else that Jesus says and everything else that the whole Bible says, which is how you read the Bible. You come to a verse and you're like, that doesn't make sense. We'll look at it in its chapter. Look at it in its book. Look at it in its testament. Look at it in its Bible. Putting all things together The idea here is not so much a works-based salvation through forgiveness, but rather, if you've been forgiven, you will forgive. Like, if this has happened, this will happen. It will happen. There's, There's no questions. It will happen. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it will happen. Your forgiveness of others gives evidence of your forgiveness by God. It gives evidence. And the verb tense here is continual. Like like you're to be continually forgiving. People don't have to do penance to earn your forgiveness. People don't have to walk through some level of punishment from you before you forgive them. No, you forgive them because you love Jesus and He forgave you. The Bible says that while we were yet enemies, Jesus forgave us. And so this truth, this good news, this gospel is to form the way we interact and fuel the way we interact. And so years ago, there was a commercial, uh, Gatorade commercial, like Mike. I want to be like Mike. You guys, anybody remember those things? I used to have, I used to be a big Michael Jordan fan. I was not anymore. He's very prideful. But, but back in the day, I remember of that. Junior Jordan Club and all this stuff. Big, big. But like Mike, I want to be like Mike, right? That's a commercial. For the follower of Jesus, we need to have a continual commercial on repeat of like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. I'm called to live like Jesus. He forgave us freely. Again, at much cost to Himself. He was the one we rebelled against, yet He's the one who bore it and forgave. And we're to do the same. And to be sure, forgiveness does not mean approval of someone's sin. It's not denying sin. It's not diminishing. Oh, no big deal. No, it is a big deal. Jesus had to die for it. That's a big deal. So you can forgive someone, but still have to call the cops. I thought you forgave me. I do. Jesus does too. But there's consequences. But still, forgiveness is not contingent upon what someone else does. 
It's not contingent upon someone making it right. It's not contingent upon um, some arbitrary standard of of, fee, of 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 thinking they need to feel bad enough to some standard you've established before you'll give forgiveness. Is that what Jesus does with you? And so you forgive freely. And it's not conditional. You do this, I'll forgive. You don't do this, I won't forgive. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't do that. You don't either. It's the grace that flows in. It's the grace that flows out. I saw a quote this week that I thought was really good. It, says, it said this. It, said, it takes one to repent and one to forgive and two to reconcile. But you can forgive whether or not they ever repent and apologize and change. We're called to that. We're called to be continual forgivers. Quick to forgive because we realize all that we've been forgiven of. Eric Wright puts it like this. A forgiving person is one who, out of a profound sense of being personally forgiven a great debt by God, is quick to ask forgiveness from another. Who repudiates anger, bitterness, and a desire for revenge to initiate a loving approach to whomever may have hurt him or her, and who offers to freely forgive and call to memory no more the injury caused with the hope that reconciliation may be achieved. And so here's where we do some introspection. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? What did they say? What did they do? What did they fail to do? And like I said earlier, I'm under no illusion that this is easy. As a pastor, I get to sit on the front row of the worst situations in people's lives. And I see it. So I know it's not easy. I get that. But still, who do you need to forgive? What person? Okay. I want you to, I want the Holy, Father, pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring to mind people right now to forgive. Situations. Let's just pause for about 60 seconds. And let's think about this. Who do I need to forgive? Or, or maybe you've been judgmental. And you've assumed wrong motives. You've cast people's actions in the worst light. You've been quick to criticize, slow to listen, quick to take offense, slow to forgive. What do you need to repent of? And what, who do you need to forgive? Let's take about 60 seconds. I'll give you the chance to just pray. Ask the Lord to work in your heart and forgive.
Amen. So again, the grace that flows in is to be the grace that flows out. We forgive freely because we've been freely forgiven. And so mark number one, you're not a judgmental jerk. That's mark of maturity. Second mark of maturity is that you're quick to forgive. Third mark of maturity is that you ooze generosity. It just oozes out of you. Look at verse 37 again. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. And so God calls us to do more than just forgive. He calls us to go beyond that and give. I mean, it's, a, it, it's saying one thing to say, I forgive you. It's something else to do something to bless someone who sinned against you. Yet this is what Jesus has done for us. He forgives us of our sins and He gives us eternal life. He gives us far more grace than we deserve. And that's how we're to give to others far more than they deserve. Because we deserve nothing. Yet Jesus gave us everything. And as I said last week, the world knows nothing of this. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you? Pray for those who abuse you? What kind of bizarro world is that? And it makes people ask questions. Why on earth would you do that? Because I've been forgiven. Because I'm undeserving. Because I've been given grace. I now should give grace. No better than anyone else. We're all in the same boat. We all need grace and forgiveness and mercy. Countercultural. And it causes the church, when we live that way, to shine like a light. And people to take note. And this is, this is who we are to be. It is only the church who knows the one, not a method, but knows the person who can invade brokenness and bring reconciliation in a thousand different ways. You can change us from the inside out. Everything else is just behavioral modification that will break down. But Jesus changes. He transforms us. He gives us new life and then continually is giving us new motives and new uh, new desires and new um, um, uh, wants that we want to pers- pursue. That are His wants and His desires. That's why the whole verse that people are like, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And so people think, well, I'll just love God and He'll give me a, 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 a Mercedes. No, that's not the way it works. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart because your desires are now His desires. And He's going to give you those. It's not, I'll do this to get this. I'm not a genie. You delight yourself in the Lord. You love what He loves. And now your desires are His desires. And so He's absolutely going to give you those. And so it's the church that should lead the call for unity, for peace, for listening. We don't just not judge and condemn. We also forgive and give. This is what the gospel does. It's an implication. It's what the spirit does 
how He works in us. We're called to go beyond just not judging and condemning to actually forgiving and giving. Alright? Seeking the improvement of others. We do that in our marriage. I don't live for me. I live for my spouse. Or at least I should. We all fail, right? We do this in the church. We don't live for just me. We live for one another. Or at least we should. We, in society, we don't just live for, for me. We live for the benefit of mankind. Like if God forgives you, we forgive others. If God gives to you, we're to give to others. That's what it comes down to. Give what? Respect. Dignity. The benefit of the doubt. Help. Sympathy. This is the way it's supposed to work. Otherwise, we're all hypocrites receiving forgiveness and receiving God's generosity, but not giving forgiveness and giving generosity. And so our relationship with God shows up in our relationship with others. That whole vertical impacts the horizontal. And our relationship with God shows up in our relationship with our money and our finances and our possessions. Because this idea of giving here and, it, and, and generosity also includes that as well. And God promises to bless people who live that way. Look at verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be, you use, it will be measured back to you. So the, the, the blessing that God promises here is the direct opposite of a bag of potato chips. Have you ever opened like, you go to the store, and they've got this giant family-sized bag of potato chips that you could put a small child in, and you open it up, and there's like one-fifth of the bag of the bottom that's full of chips. Everything else just hot air and lies. This blessing God is speaking of is like like a bag that's been pressed down, shaken so you can get the air out, press down some more and shaken, press down some more so it's filling up every nook and cranny and continuing to put more and more in and pressing it down and pressing it down and pressing it down and shaking it and then heaping it up and it's spilling over into your lap. That's what this reward is all about. And sometimes... You get this reward in life and sometimes you're storing up treasure in heaven. But one way or another, God likes to give to those who are giving so that they can give some more. And so I'm not talking about the evil lie of prosperity theology. Oh, if you do this and you, you believe God enough and you, 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 you give your money away. You know, if you give to the church, then God's going to give you a boat. And, and if he doesn't, then it's because you didn't give enough or you didn't believe hard enough. That's a lie from the pit of hell that people use to get private jets. And that was not a shrouded shot at some people. (laughs) I'm also not talking about we need to live in some idea of poverty theology where if you're a Christian, then you need to get, get rid of everything that you have. Your kids should have no toys that you should eat rice every single day and nothing else and give everything you have and live in a styrofoam box to show your piety. 
And we do need to recognize we live beyond our needs a lot. It's not a call to poverty theology. The idea is generous theology. As God gives to me, I will give to others. As God has been to me, I will give to others. And I'll give to the poor. I'll give to the church. Not with the idea of how much of my money do I have to give, but understanding everything on this planet is God's. And so how much of God's money that He's entrusted to me do I need to keep? And then everything else I give. That's the question of generosity. How much can I give? Not how much can I keep? It's a lifestyle pattern after God who's a giver. I mean, He just is. Even the baseball sign verse that people you know, hold up at baseball, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He what? Gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. He's a giver. And you can't outgive Him. It's just who He is. He's a giver. And so like God, like Christ, He gave His life for us. We give. We die to ourselves and live for others. And we give respect where it's not maybe earned. And we give love. And we give effort. And we give understanding. And we give the benefit of the doubt. And we give help. And we give financially to the church and to others. And so that's mark number three. Mark number one. Of maturity, you're not a judgmental jerk. That's a sign of maturity. Another sign of maturity, you're um, um, quick to forgive. Another sign of maturity or another mark of maturity, you ooze generosity. And then the fourth one we'll talk about this morning, sign of mature or mark of maturity is that you are aggressively self-distrusting and self-examining. You are aggressively self-distrusting and self-examining. Look at verse 39 with me. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Right? This is what we're talking about. This is, you know... Um, uh, the, these marks. This is, what it will, this is what it means to be mature. You look like Jesus. That's, that's what we're talking about. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. And, and so the, this is kind of returning to the idea of judgmentalism here, but, but w- with a way to attack the proclivity in all of us to be judgmental. That we should be aggressively self-distrusting and self-examining. Like so often, we are blind to our own blindness. And so Jesus lays out this kind of Pretty funny story here about a guy who's basically got like a cross tie coming out of his eye and he's walking around trying to, you know, talk to others about sin in their lives and just whacking them with the cross tie the whole time, never understanding that he's got this giant problem that he just can't see. 
And it's not saying, like right there, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. It's not saying that if we've got a cross tie in our eye, we'll never be able to minister to someone. No, it's just saying pretending that you don't, then you won't. Like if you pretend that you don't have issues, you, if you're just pretending then you're blind to the issues that you have. And it says, verse 39, a blind man can't lead a blind man. They'll both fall off a cliff. Fall into a pit. And so you don't have to be perfect to minister. If that were the case, I'd have a different job. But to not think that you need help, well, that's a different issue. And so we're blind to our own blindness naturally and then sometimes purposefully. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to enter into that. We don't want to question things that maybe we've assumed for our whole lives. We, we just, I don't want to see it. I don't want to know it. And so we keep our eyes closed and we refuse to remove our lenses and put on some other lenses. And the way to attack this and a mark of maturity is to aggressively distrust yourself and aggressively examine yourself. Like walking into every situation with the mindset of, I'm 99% of the problem in this. Not walking in, what did they do? What did they walk? What did I do? What did I do? That, that's how we approach a situation. What, what, and, and can you imagine if the whole world lived that way? Instead of coming and pointing and trying to figure, everyone walked. What did I do in this? How did I respond wrong in this? How did I respond? How did I lead into this? How did I contribute to this? What did what did I do? And being quick to repent and quick to get that log out of our own eyes before we talk about what is in someone else's, which needs to be talked about. But we've got to remove ours first. So we've got to learn to distrust ourselves. We will lie to ourselves. We will justify things. We lie to ourselves better than politicians lie to us. You've got to learn. And I will lie to myself. I mean, I've talked about it before, but, but my greatest enemy and threat to my own joy and peace and life and love and walk and work for Christ the biggest thing that is an enemy or a threat to that is not stuff out there, but it's right here in this heart. That's the biggest threat. That's my biggest problem. And you are your biggest problem. And so, do you believe that? Like, not just with some false humility. I'm in church. I need to say that. Do you believe that? Think about the Apostle Paul for just a minute. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. You don't have to turn there. But I will. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Praise the Lord. But then he says this, of whom I am the foremost. 
Now, was that true? I'm just thinking about it. Is that true? I mean, for a while, yes. Paul was known as Saul of Tarsus, and he was a member of the ISIS of his day. Right? He was part of a he was a zealous follower of a false religion, traveling around the Middle East, killing Christians. That's who he was, Saul of Tarsus. But by the time he's writing this, this is decades after his conversion. He's no longer Saul of Tarsus. Now he's Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. This is decades later. He's planted dozens of churches. He's written two thirds of the books that we now have in our New Testament. And so at the time of his writing, Paul's like a guy we would view standing on a mountaintop, hands on his hip, cape flapping in the wind. He's like a superstar. He's a superhero of the Bible. That's how you know he's just an absolute beast of a Christian. And yet, how does he view himself? Of whom I am the foremost. The worst of sinners. So he doesn't look at others and say, man, they, they, they got problems. He looks at himself and says, I got problems. So he recognizes I'm probably even blind to my own blindness. And so like David, Lord, search me and, and know me and, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And we need to do that as well. I'm not saying we need to live in a life of depression. Oh gosh, I am just an absolute pile of manure. But we do need to see that. We do need to know that. But then like the Scottish preacher said, for every one look at our sin, take ten looks at the cross. And remember His grace and His mercy and see your sin crucified, washed, grace flowing to you. And may that same grace that flows, flow to others. And it causes us to walk in humility with an aggressive self-distrust, an aggressive self-examination, looking hard for logs that may be in our own eyes before we deal with specks that are in others. But we've got to attack that cross tie that's in our own. First John says, if we, do, if we say that we have no sin in us, we, the truth is not in us. We deny and the truth is not in us. And no one would stand up and say, oh, I don't have any sin in my life. We just default believe it. Every situation, default, they did this. Default, they did this. We need to learn to be default, I did this. How did I contribute? What did I do? Doesn't mean that they don't need to be dealt with. But we've got to deal with us first. And so as we close, we're going to kind of do the same thing we did a couple minutes ago. We're going to take a minute and we're going to pause. And so I want to ask you, what log is in your eye? Is it pride? Pride pops up in some of the weirdest places, even in places where it starts well, but then it real quick becomes, thank God I'm not like that person, a sinner. So what log is in your eye? Close your eyes for a moment. And let's just, we're going to pray and we're gonna, I'm going to say some thoughts, but this is you and the Lord. What log is in your eye?
given the events of the week with France and Turkey and last week with Baton Rouge and Falcon Heights and Dallas? Are you inherently prejudiced or have thoughts about Arab-looking people or black people based on the actions of a few? Are you inherently prejudiced against police officers because of the actions of a few? What log is in your eye? Please don't play church this morning. Or, or, or please don't play. Let's, let's be the church. Let's make war on our individual selves and show grace and mercy and love to others. What, what log do you have in your eye? Maybe it's one that's been there for a long time and you've been blind to it. And God is opening your eyes. Search us and know us. Know our hearts, O oh God. And see if there be any wicked way in us. Let's take, a, take about 60 seconds to do that. Father, open our eyes to the logs that are in our eyes. Let us see them. Free us from our blindness to our sin. And forgive us for our judgmentalism. Forgive us for being slow to forgive instead of quick to forgive. Forgive us for lacking generosity. Forgive us for assuming that others are wrong and not attacking our own heart and our own mind first. And Father, we need, we need supernatural power through the Holy Spirit to live this way. Countercultural as you called us to. So help us. Father, help us also, even as we're reminded of our sin and, 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 and how we've sinned against You and what, who we need to forgive and what logs we need to pull out, remind us of the cross. And that every sin is nailed there for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there's no condemnation. There's only grace. And your love for us isn't set in us getting it right. But that Jesus got it right for us. And so we're, we're secure in your love and your care there. But that drives us then. To seek to live like 
you, Jesus, like our teacher disciples, fully trained, will look like the teacher. To help us. Help us today. In Christ's name.